Bear Grylls, who uh, takes celebrities out to the wilderness or some icy area that no one lives and uh, has these adventures uh, with them basically to survive for a few days, right? And so they eat disgusting things and they rappel down these sheer cliffs and learn to do all these kind of survival things that only Navy SEAL type people know. And almost without fail, the celebrities who agree to do this show end up doing three things, okay? One, they're humbled by being with him. They're humbled by being with him. So most have seen him in his shows and other stuff that he's done in the past. And so uh, there is something, though, about being in these really capable hands uh, that humbles you, and especially if you're a Hollywood actor or actress, right? Uh, so they don't show up saying, uh, well, here's a piece of advice I have to give to you, and here's how we should really, you know, scale this, this icy sheer cliff. Um, they're just humbled because they're out of their element. So that's the first thing. Number two, they risk more. They risk more. So every, every star inevitably says something like, normally I wouldn't do this, but Bear Grylls is telling me to do this, so why not? And then they do it. Right? They're, they're bolder because they're in those capable hands, and so they risk differently because they're with him. There's a kind of freedom that happens by being in, those, in that situation of trust. That's number two. Number three, they're surprised at how much he does with so little. They're surprised at how much he does with so little. So he finds resources you know, that you all need in nature and little grubs to eat and the parachute cord ends up being this elaborate shelter and the branches and all this stuff where it doesn't seem like there's anything medicinal around, anything to eat around, anything that's going to provide shelter around. And somehow he works with very, very little and they just walk away being very impressed by that. So there's something humbling, freeing, and impressive about being in very capable hands. And this is kind of our response when we see those things at work, right? We're humbled as well by, say, the power of a storm. Or we're uh, freed when we feel like we can really trust the person we're with in a way. And we're impressed when someone can take the same tools that are in your garage, right? And, and the same materials that are in your garage and make something incredible out of it that you never could have done. We're impressed by those things as well. So humility and freedom result from knowing that you are in capable, powerful hands. And this is part of the reason why the scriptures are so insistent that we take note at how God works. And to not forget what he does, the kinds of things he does, the kinds of actions that he takes. So in Psalm 78, as an example... Asaph says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. We'll tell the next generation that they might know them, children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. Why would telling your kids about what God does help them to hope in God? It's because when you tell your kids or you tell other people what the Lord has done, they're impressed by his power. They trust his skill. 
they recognize how much God does with so little. And that's why we're to take account of the works of God and see what he does to know what kind of God or what kind of God he is, who he is. And hasn't it been a delight to see God at work in the book of Acts? Some of the things that he's done, it's just been astounding, right? He's, his promise of power that Christ gave those apostles. Just wait, it'll come, right? The Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to make you witnesses to the ends of the earth. He's, he's doing that, right? We're seeing that circle widen every week. The power that he's giving to, to these men to preach and to announce the arrival of the kingdom and to simultaneously heal. To work on this mass scale with thousands of people coming to Christ and also in these very specific individual cases like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. He's seen God at work in the book of Acts. He's doing awesome things. And this morning we're going to see God's power at work in the life of Saul. And we will be humbled and we will be invited to a new freedom to trust him by just seeing how he handles this man. So I want to read to us Acts 9, verses 1 through 31. If you brought your Bibles, open up to that. Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. And I'll read about the conversion of this man named Saul. Here's what it says. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. If you didn't have a Bible or didn't bring one, there's some in the back in the, in the entryway there. Go ahead and grab one. Here's what it says. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand. And brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You can be seated. Our point is simple this morning. Saul's transformation from persecutor to preacher shows the power of God to save people and accomplish his purposes. That transformation shows the power of God to save people and accomplish his purposes. And the effect that seeing that power is going to have on us is it's going to create humility and freedom in us. You see the outline there on your uh, insert of your bulletin. Uh, Saul the persecutor, Saul the persecuting, Saul the persecuted, and a summary report. So let's start with Saul the persecutor. Luke picks up where we left off with this character Saul. Uh, if you remember from chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, Saul had approved of this execution of Stephen. He was ravaging the church, it says, dragging them off to prison. <clears throat> and here in chapter 9, we see him up his commitment to snuffing out this new movement called the Way. And he's doing that by offering to purge Damascus of any followers of Christ as well. Okay? Damascus is 135 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It had a substantial Jewish population and uh, especially since the persecution of, at Jerusalem, and they were scattered, <clears throat> there were probably a lot of believers there, um, probably some Greek-speaking Christians. Ananias, we learn, is one of those. But Saul needed letters of permission uh, from Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time, to have the authority to, to bring people back under arrest to Jerusalem. And so Saul leaves Jerusalem with this anti-evangelist, on-the-warpath kind of uh, plan. And this is really our first irony, right? That Saul has been authorized 
He's traveling with these signed papers as this high authority on the will of Caiaphas. And look how impressive he is in all of his uh, authority. So that's Saul the persecutor. Luke is just reminding us of who this man is before we get to his conversion. So in 3 through 19, we see Saul the persecuting. So in verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. All of a sudden, his plans get interrupted. And this light that's described later in Acts when Paul is telling this story a couple other times in the book of Acts in chapter 22 and 26, it describes this light as brighter than the sun. Paul also tells us later that it's about noon. So this is, a, this is a revelation of powerful glory from God that is widespread, that, that stuns this group and knocks him to the ground. He has Paul's attention, Saul's attention. But it's not just that. That would be enough to kind of trouble you, right? But then there's this voice. They're looking around. They don't know where that is. He repeats his name twice for kind of the effect of getting his attention. Saul, Saul, why are, why are you persecuting me? Saul does the right thing by saying, who are you, Lord? Giving him some respect, right? Whoever this voice is from wherever it's coming from, uh, identify yourself, please. We can further the conversation. And then the stunning words, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine being Saul in that moment? The risen Messiah speaking directly to you, who you have been harassing by throwing his people into jail. You hear from him directly. I am Jesus, Saul. Notice how closely Jesus identifies with his church. When he says to persecute my church is the same as to persecute me. See, I'm the head of a body. And I know when my body is harmed. Jesus is so intertwined with the life and health of the church that he identifies with the suffering personally, which makes it all the harder for Saul to hear. He's been persecuting his Messiah. Now, we know the rest of the story, but imagine you don't. And you hear the rest of what Jesus says. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. There's not a lot of resolution in that yet. You're not quite sure what to make of it, right? You've been arresting my people and I take it very personally. Continue on to Damascus and I'll give you more instructions when it's time. This could be like a mob hit in a movie. Right? You're messing with my people. Let's go take a walk. You know, like this could be cement shoes kind of moment, right? This could be judgment. He has no idea. All he knows, he's been persecuting the Messiah and his people. 
His traveling companions don't really know what to do. They're speechless. They heard it too. They don't know where it came from. He can't see. He's debilitated. So Saul is really in a bind here. He's really, he's really in a corner. And oh, if we could see inside the soul of Saul for these three days, what would that have been like? The regret, the agony, the confusion, maybe the wonder. Dots are being connected. Up was down and right was left. The Messiah was risen and talking to him. I mean, imagine what those three days were like. Those were three days of heart reassignment surgery. I guarantee you, guarantee you that. And this is the great irony, the second irony that we see. And I love how John Stott describes it. He says, He who had expected to enter Damascus in the fullness of his pride and prowess as a self-confident opponent of Christ was actually led into it, humbled and blinded, a captive of the very Christ he had opposed. Christ arrested him before he had the chance to arrest any Christians in Damascus. You see how Luke is building the tension of this story. The underlying question is, who is, who is Saul's man? Who, who is this guy owned by? He's got papers that say one thing, but now he has this, this Messiah who's blinded him, who's, who's laying claim to him as well. And so the question is, whose is he? What's going to become of this conflicted man? Will he end up being the high priest's man or the risen Christ's man? Whose papers will he ultimately carry, is the question. And then you just kind of fade to black in verse 9. And then he picks it up in a whole different scene. This guy Ananias, right? And the Lord just taps the shoulder of this ordinary guy. I want you to go here. This is the street. This is the name of the guy whose house it is. You'll find a guy here named here. He's going to be doing this, and I want you to do this. Very direct. Not a lot of backstory given. And Ananias, God bless him, has a few concerns of his own, right? You see that text? Verse 13, Lord, uh, I have heard from many about this man. He's got, a couple of, he's got a couple of questions. Lord, have you researched this guy, right? This guy is public enemy number one. And Ananias is showing a lack of understanding in a couple ways in what he's going to say. First, he doesn't understand how closely Jesus identifies with his people, Because if Jesus is aware of the suffering of his people in Jerusalem, then surely he understands the dangers involved, right? Of course he knows all those who have been locked up in Jerusalem. The second thing is, it's kind of funny how Ananias even says it. I mean, he's speaking to the risen Christ, and he says... um, In verse 13... Verse 14, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Lord, this is a really powerful guy. I mean, he's from the chief priest. He's got a job to do here. And you don't, I'm a little concerned about that. This guy's got a lot of power, Lord. See how Ananias has kind of even forgotten who he's talking to? He's telling Jesus, this guy, you might want to be careful with this guy. 
And here is exactly where we find the resolution to the, to the story, this question of who, who is Saul going to belong to? And listen to the authority with which God speaks in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. Verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer. You see, yeah, yeah, Ananias, I've got this worked out. We're good. I actually picked him from before the foundation of the world. People aren't thrust on me to kind of have to use with, well, uh, I got Joe over here and I got Sally over here and well, they're the best I got. So I got to, that's not how this works, Ananias. I picked this guy from Tarsus. He's not a backup instrument. He's not an object of revenge. He is my instrument. And I'll use him how I desire to use him. And it's not just some menial task. I mean, this instrument is going to be used to speak of Christ to kings. He says, not only Ananias, do I have plans for this guy? I've got big plans for him, actually. He's going to be critical to the mission. He's going to suffer for the sake of Christ's name, not He's not going to suffer for discrediting the name. He's going to suffer on behalf of Jesus. His answer is basically, Saul is now owned and operated by me. Thank you very much. And Ananias, um, later Paul actually acknowledges this in Galatians 1 when Paul says, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own among own people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. See, Paul got it. And Ananias would too in time. There's a much bigger plan going on here. Ananias, you're not going to believe what I'm going to do with this guy. So Ananias goes, God bless Ananias goes to this house, public enemy number one, and what does he say to him? Brother Saul. Brother Saul. It's an amazing act of faith. And that little statement, imagine how that sounds to Saul who would probably expect the church to be so grumpy about this, right? Yeah, we're going to kind of let him come in, but through the back door, right? We're not going to put him in ministry for a long time. Brother Saul, that's what he says. And through this ordinary, we don't know much about Ananias because he's probably not all that spectacular of a guy. Fades from view, but here we have scales falling off, the Holy Spirit being given, and this apostle being strengthened by this little ordinary guy who's willing to obey. There's some irony here, as you can imagine. Instead of hunting down followers of Christ to arrest, these Christians are seeking him out by God's instruction. An everyday Christian standing over the mighty Saul to serve him, to care for him. What what an unexpected outcome. 
Saul leaves Damascus as a spiritually blind instrument and messenger for the Jewish leaders, and he leaves Damascus as a seeing instrument and messenger for Christ. What a turnaround. So that's Saul the persecuting. Let's look at Saul the persecuted. And we have to move through this text quickly. There's a lot, of, there's a lot to say here that can't be said. But I want to at least highlight two things that we see from verses 20 through 30 in this reversal now. Notice first, the examples of God's protection in using Saul for his purposes. I mean, God overcomes the skepticism of the church itself. You can imagine the difficulty of seeing him walk through those doors and not just cringing, kind of everyone being like knife at the ready, you know, kind of thing. These faithful men, Barnabas, Ananias, risking to put him before the body, obedient. You wonder what the New Testament would have been like without Ananias or Barnabas. Faithful guys. Saul is being strengthened physically and in ministry. He's, being, he's becoming a better and better preacher, it seems quickly by the power of God. So God's not only showing his power and protecting this man, who's kind of the enemy of both groups in some ways for a while, but he's also helping him to to get his feet under him and to grow him and prepare him for the ministry that he has for him. It's remarkable. You notice that he's preaching with power, and you see what it says in verse 25? They plot to kill him. They're watching the gates. But his disciples, it seems like it's referring to Saul's disciples or people who are kind of gathered around him in ministry, protect him by God's hand. And so he's being strengthened. He's being protected by God's power. And just notice the transition from persecutor to preacher. I mean, there is just no downtime. It's likely that, that Saul, Luke doesn't include kind of his trip to Arabia, which is kind of to the southeast for a few years, to receive the revelation of the gospel directly and to probably understand the mystery of Jew and Gentile and those things happened. But this text says that he immediately jumped into ministry at Damascus, probably then going out to Arabia, coming back to Damascus. It's probably kind of interwoven in between these verses. But it says in verse 20, he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Can you imagine? One day it's one thing, next day, well, he's the son of God. What happened with this guy? What is he talking about? It's remarkable how quickly Paul jumps in. Saul preaching Christ. Can you imagine watching Richard Dawkins preach about the glory of Jesus? The North Korean dictator going to the mission field? A Taliban leader confessing Christ? An Al Jazeera TV? Imagine we called a congregational meeting to say that we were going to support the ministry of Nicholas Cruz, the former shooter, you know, at the Florida scene. Comes to Christ and is now ministering from prison. Imagine how that proposal might go. 
This is head-scratching, worlds colliding, upside-down, upending kind of grace. Really, Lord, Brother Saul? Brother Jong-un? Brother Dawkins? Brother Nicholas? The irony is so thick here that the one who is sent out to snuff this religion would be the primary evangelist of it. That the one who caused havoc in Jerusalem now causes a different kind of havoc in Jerusalem. That the ones who were sent to arrest and eventually murder Christians, or Paul, is being hunted by the same people who sent him probably. That the man who stood and watched Stephen dispute and be killed by the Jewish Hellenists is now having similar disputes, maybe even in the same synagogue. You see why all of these ironies are in this text? Luke wants us to notice those. Do you know why? To see the power of God to save. The drastic turnaround 180 that happens in this chapter is saying God is powerful to save. He can turn a man like Saul because God is who he is. That's what this text is saying. So as we think about this text, what is, what is the intended effect of reading this supposed to be on us here today? What are these ironic twists pointing to? What, what kind of impact should they make? Well, I'm actually going to go backwards from your outline. I'm going to start with number two there. Sorry about that. Last minute call. Um... And that's this. First, or second on your paper, seeing the power required to sustain a person in serving Jesus Christ calls those in Christ to trust his grace and depend on his resources. Seeing the power required to sustain a person, this guy Saul, in serving Jesus Christ, calls those in Christ to trust his grace and depend on his resources. We said earlier that when you're in capable hands, that there's freedom, there's, there's a willingness to risk, or there's uh, a trust that's there. So when, when our family piles in the van, our four kids aren't like grabbing the edge of the van going, I hope dad knows how to drive. Because there's an established understanding that I, for the most part, know what I'm doing. And so they bicker and they fight and they put gum on the side of the van and they do all kinds of things in the van but worry because there's, there's trust there. They're in capable hands. But when the 16-year-old is driving and the parent is on the passenger side, the dynamic's a little bit different, right? The parent's probably not adjusting the radio and putting gum on the window and they're probably grabbing onto something. And anticipating things and white-knuckling it and because there's not that trust, right? It hasn't been established yet. And there's more experience that's needed. See, there is freedom when we believe we're in capable hands. And if God can make a Paul out of a Saul, then that means that his hands are capable, right? And he has the ability to transform means that being an instrument of a master this resourceful and powerful 
causes us to boldly trust and depend on his resources, not on our own. It makes you thankful to be an instrument, right? Do we think that God is capable of transforming us? We could easily say from watching Saul's conversion, you know, normally I wouldn't do this, but if God's capable of changing that guy, like a Bear Grylls kind of a thing, right? Then I, I can trust him. We risk differently because we see what God's capable of. There's a freedom that comes from this. God can use his church to encourage and guide and confirm things in us. God can strengthen us for the tasks that he calls us to do. God can protect us in ways that we can't anticipate so that we can be, live risky lives. Now, when we see God's ability, our response is not, well, I'll just sit back because he knows what he's doing. It's I'm going to trust him and I'm going to depend on his resources. There are days when we simply need to trust that we don't know everything. There are times when you won't have the resources necessary to pull it off in your own flesh. By design. This idea that if you run out of gas, then the God must not be in it, that's baloney. Sometimes that's the point. Right? Like, you're out of gas because you're not the point, And your ability has never been the issue. I was telling guys yesterday, just feeling overwhelmed right now in life a lot of the time. And I think some of this is just God saying, you just don't have a grip on the things you think you do. Sometimes empty is the best way. But we must depend on the things that Christ has given to us to endure. His word, his spirit, his church. If we aren't relying on those things, then we're not actually submitting to him. Because we still need to trust him. We need to depend on his resources for those things. So that's the first, I think, result of looking at this incredible demonstration of power is that there's freedom that we're given now. Oh yeah, God knows what he's doing. He's capable. But number two, implication number one on your sheet, is seeing the power required to humble Saul and unite him to Jesus Christ humbles those who are in Christ and it removes all other options for the lost. There are some ways that Saul's story is not our story. You might not have heard an audible voice if you came to Christ. You're not an apostle. Sorry, but you're not. Okay? There's a difference in some of those, di- those dynamics. But in a lot of ways, Saul's story is the story of every Christian, isn't it? where each of us in our natural state are committed to a form of religion that will save us from the judgment that we deserve. We are all the not-Christ religion when we arrive on planet Earth. And the alternatives might look a little bit different, but they're all not-Christ. And we're all dead set on living life without God's help or direction initially. We have total faith in our own sufficiency and ability. We start there, don't we? We feel guilty and condemned because we are guilty and we are condemned. We're frustrated that we're powerless to become the people we desire to become. We're blind to our own spiritual deficits. We're dismissing all this God talking. And then, all of a sudden, grace interrupts us. 
And we come into contact with this news from heaven, this news bulletin that says that we're in danger, that reveals our true state, that shows that we in fact deserve God's judgment, that we fall miles short of what he asks and commands. But then it says that God has done something to satisfy his own requirements, his own commands. That he's come himself in the person of Jesus to live the most fully human life that's ever been lived, to die as a sacrificial lamb, trading Christ's body and blood for our sin, where we receive his record and he gets our rebellion and all of God's anger that goes with that. Then there's this demonstration that sin's final bill is paid in the resurrection of this Nazarene, where he apparently has dealt definitively, definitively with sin. He appears to eyewitnesses and ascends from heaven, and he's going to come back from that heaven. That, that news bulletin, that interruption of grace, just comes streaking through all of that self-sufficiency and just lights up our eyes to see what's really going on. Do you remember what that was like? When in the middle of yourself, God's grace interrupted you showed you who you really were and who Christ really was and all of a sudden things add up now when that happens it always issues in a personal invitation right we always must deal directly with Christ there is no second hand Christian because of a holy grandfather somewhere ten generations back we each face him directly and personally we meet him it's one thing to see an offer of pardon on a poster somewhere for all those who are guilty. And it's quite another to rip off that poster and to run to the courthouse and to bust into the judge's uh, office and to throw yourself on his mercy. See, all offers only remain offers until there is a response. And that's us, if you're a believer here this morning. We must personally confess the pipe dream of living our own independent, self-sufficient lives devoid of God. We each have to do that and admit to having these rebellious hearts and minds that kind of created a God of our own liking that just happens to coincide with our existing life and lifestyle. But then we were tempted to make the basis of the forgiveness for doing all that wrong, some promises to read the Bible or to go to church or to help the poor or to do all these things, and God does not accept that form of payment. And so while we confess and we repent and we acknowledge who we are and all of our rebellion, at the same time he puts forward Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection as the means by which we can be made right with God again. The only form of payment that heaven accepts. If you're a Christian here, has watching the rescue of Saul reminded you of your own story? Do you remember that hopelessness? Kind of that trying one thing one week, trying the next thing the next? Do you remember that gut wrenching realization? of how off you were, but yet how available forgiveness was? Do you remember what that was like? This week, it's been, it's been interesting just going back and thinking about what that, all, what that experience was like. Was there an Ananias 
in your life who pointed you the way? Remember that person? The first thrilling look at Jesus with the eyes of faith, wanting to be with him in times of prayer and in his word and hungering after the truth. We walk a lot of different paths to get to this same grace. But God starts us all in the same way, which is humbled at the cross. We all start there. And so the backstory of every Christian is mercy. We all have that in common if you're a follower of Christ here. And that's a very intentional on God's part because it's like a fixed leash on our pride. You ever seen those dogs who were tied up with those big long ropes or big long leashes and they go running after something and you just see that rope kind of stretching out and stretching out and stretching out and you're like, this isn't going to end. And there's a, eventually that end where that end of that leash hits and snaps that dog back, keeps him from running off. I think that's what conversion is for the believer a lot of the time. It's like the end of that leash that pride won't win out because there's this incredibly generous act of God in our lives to be gracious to us that just keeps us from devastating pride. I love what Paul says, what we read earlier when he says that he's the foremost sinner in that thing that we read, but he says, I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul, a trophy of God's patience forever. That's why God does that, Paul says. Why did he choose Paul as an instrument? To show that he's patient forever. Have you ever considered the power that needed to be leveraged to break through your pride and to unite you with Jesus Christ? Have you thought about the power necessary to do that? Have you ever tried to convince a stubborn person that they were wrong? You're laughing because you know how impossible that is, right? And God leverages his power to break our pride totally. And leverages his power throughout thousands of years of human history to offer Jesus Christ and bring those things together and gives us understanding of those things. Do you know how much power it took? Just to make you a Christian. It's amazing. There's a lot of things out there right now that are kind of exalting things that that know how to work well with very little. Like those cooking shows where people go on and there's like four ingredients, right? And they have to make some elaborate, incredible thing out of this little bit. Or there's construction shows where people are just, they can only use a few basic tools and there's a few piles of wood and they make this beautiful structure. The point is, the less the raw materials and the greater the end result, the more skilled the chef or the contractor or whatever it is. And so God could be saying, you know, all I had to work with was Ben. Like, so full of himself, so empty of grace. It's all I had to work with. You should have seen him. Like, man, talk about rotten, warped wood. And yet God chooses us as instruments. Why? Because the instrument's fancy? Because the materials are that impressive, right? You've never, you've never congratulated tools for building a house. 
And the reason is because it's pointing out the skill of the maker, the craftsman. That's the point. So yeah, I'll use a persecutor to get the good news further than anyone else will because I can to show my power. This also means that anyone can be an instrument, by the way, which helps us to get the gospel out. Do you see, what's the intended effect of this? The backstory of mercy makes certain things look ridiculous. Like if we're trophies of grace, of God's patience, we're in the display window, standing next to each other, a big sign, I am the result of God's eternal patience. You're standing there next to me with the same sign. And we're looking down on one another. We're arguing about petty things with each other while we hold that sign. Do you see how ridiculous that is? Do you see how going back to the time when God leveraged his power to save us keeps us out of a thousand sins? And it keeps us moving towards people in certain ways that we wouldn't do otherwise if it weren't by grace that we're saved. What I've been praying is that the net effect of this text and this man and God's power to save him this week would have thousands of consequences in your lives that I would never know and could never anticipate. Because his mercy will mess with those things, won't it? When we go back and think about it. So let me ask you this. We need to wrap up and get to communion. How does the backstory of God's mercy need to humble you? How does the backstory of God's mercy need to humble you? May this be the reference point that our church has as a community again and again. How does it need to humble you? Consider that this week before we take communion this morning. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, the transformation of Saul shows you that there are no other options than what we talked about today. This kind of power needed to change you is only in one place. And that's in Jesus Christ. So if that's you this morning, you're not going to find that help anywhere else but in him. So it is this backstory of mercy that we celebrate in the Lord's communion. This is a poignant reminder, right, that we get an opportunity to do now. To remember how God's grace found us first, so we can do this morning. This is a time for followers of Jesus Christ because it's a reminder of this dramatic transformation that's occurred because of Jesus. It's looking back at his sacrifice and his cross and his tomb, but it's also looking forward to when he returns. If you're a Christian from another church, we invite you to participate. Uh, Please join us. These are your elements as well. If you're not a believer or you're under discipline from another church, we just ask you to abstain, just respect happening here. Consider what's been taught. What we're going to do is I'm going to pray in a moment and then uh, we're going to hear some, some music and you just take some time to reflect on these things. Really take a moment just to consider how God's grace got a hold of you and consider how that needs to inform how you're living. Then when you're ready you can come forward and come down the, the middle aisles here and grab a, a cup of juice and a piece of bread and take it back to your seat and wait. And when everyone's done that, we're going to take those elements together, okay? If you can't physically come forward, please get our attention. We'd love to serve you where you're at. Make sure you're a part of this. Um, So as we prepare for communion, I just want to encourage you to take a few minutes just to remember your own backstory of mercy. 
How did God show his power in saving you specifically? And how is that going to affect how we, how we live moving forward? Let's go ahead and pray as those who have been asked to serve come forward, as the worship team comes forward. Let's go ahead and pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you that the starting point of every Christian is humility before the cross. Lord, we thank you for not just having the power to save, but for using your sovereign power to save. God, we did not anticipate your grace. We did not stumble into uh, salvation. God, you opened our eyes. You opened, kicked open the door. You brought dead people to life. Father, that sounds simple. And at some level, if you're a Christian, we probably know that, but God, I pray that you would take that truth and just drive that deeper into us this week. Help us to be different because of remembering your mercy and your grace. Help us to live as demonstrations of your eternal patience. May that affect how we're patient with others. May it affect the kinds of things we'll bear with. May it affect the way in which we'll love and sacrifice for one another. May it, may it inform how we serve at this church. Oh God, we look forward to the many ways that your grace is going to, to change us and we pray for your help as we enter this week and into this time of communion. Lead us, Lord, in this. Surface the things that you want to surface. Teach us by your grace, we pray in Christ's name.